Welcome back to Midwretched Friends. Welcome back to Midwretched Friends. How y'all doing? We hope you're doing well. Are you enjoying this extended winter? Ugh, nobody's enjoying it. This is the worst. March is the worst month of the year everywhere all the time. It's awful. It has been literally the worst, grossest weather we have had mm. all like all winter. Yeah, we've had more winter in March than the actual winter time. Yeah. Other than the Christmas Eve, the Christmas storm that we got. Yeah. No, it's been cold yeah. and windy and disgusting. It snowed, hailed, and rained yesterday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really, really gross. It was really gross. My poor husband had to drive um, eight teenagers from Ecuador to O'Hare yesterday. I hope they enjoyed at the four true o'clock in the Midwest morning. experience. Yes. All the seasons. Yes. Yeah, in one day, like, <laughs> and of course they have to, they have to drive back at like five o'clock in the morning to the airport, and it was like just sloosh, disgusting. Like, they're all in like this white panel van, like, <laughs> like well, the Midwest says goodbye. I'm sure that look that had great optics. It's just like your incredibly Indiana white husband, <laughs> uh, just in a white van. <laughs> With all these like beautiful Ecuadorian teenage girls, (laughs) (laughs) it's so funny. Just for the record, visiting from abroad. (laughs) Yeah, just for the record, (laughs) they were students visiting from abroad. (laughs) He was taking them on an educational trip. Yes, he is their. um, What do you call it? In loco parentis, like he's the yeah. Yeah, he's their guardian while they're here. They're his legal, their legal guardian. So oh God, I didn't realize it was that like high stakes. Yeah, when they're minors, he has to be their like legal guardian. Like they don't live with us, obviously, but yeah, he's their legal guardian while they're here. Yeah, so. he does not get paid enough to be their legal guardian while they're here. He sh- no, he sure doesn't. Jesus fucking Christ! Isn't that crazy? Yeah, he does such good work though. It's I'm proud of him. Aww. Yeah. Yeah, he had me amused tonight, as I told you, because we went through the Midwest uh, accent kerfuffle. I still want to challenge know mine. all of you. There's an extension of it. I don't think it's New York Times anymore, but there's like this um, project that just catalogs like every regional accent that exists in the states, mm-hmm. and it ha- it takes like volunteers to say the same like phrases. And you can even hear, like, just the little differences between counties even, like, a Detroiter versus somebody from Western Michigan is going to sound different, you know? I I love that. I read an article a while ago that the uh, Chicago accent is dying, which breaks my heart so hard. I'm not surprised, but that's sad. It is, because Chicago has just recently been... People from Chicago, very often now, they don't stay in Chicago, so they move Mm -hmm. out, and then we get a lot, because we have so many universities, we have so many students, and new people move in, and so we don't have the condensed Chicago as much as we used to. So I highly encourage all of our listeners to really just just Chicago it up. Just draw (laughs) those A's. Double Just down on double your down. Midwestern accent, Fuck if that is what you TH. have. the It's duh bears. <laughs> Pronounce everything as duh. <laughs> True that. Well, I feel like the, it's a, in some ways, the accent dying is probably a byproduct of the city's continued diversification, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, very much. Yeah. 
So it's a blessing and a sadness at the same time. It's Mm -hmm. bittersweet. Anyway, so yeah, we got distracted by a few things and now we're back and mostly maybe I'm stalling because your case is very um, troubling for me. So yeah, uh, heads up. This is a rough one. And like in a time where we talk about a lot of rough ones. Mm hmm. Oof, it's a kid case. So, you know, like if kid cases in general are tougher for you, maybe just like take a few deep breaths and and make sure you take care of yourself on this one. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So on that lighthearted note, should we dive in? Should we stop avoiding and just do it? I wasn't avoiding. Well, aren't you Mm. special? Okay. I spent hours writing this script. So true. You did. So after all of that stalling, today we're going to be talking about the about a Jane Doe case. This case is 40 years old now. It is still unsolved. And in all of those 40 years, we'll talk about it. But some of the information has gone missing. Mm-hmm. Some witnesses' names have been lost or were never given by choice of the witnesses. There's been changing information, changing technology that has shined slightly different looks at the case. So yeah, today we're going to be talking about the case of Little Jane Doe, also known as Precious Doe, Precious Hope Doe, and the St. Louis Jane Doe. A quick note on sources, most of our information came directly from local news reportings from throughout the years, FBI, other missing persons, websites, and a lot came from a very recent documentary called Our Precious Hope Revisited, St. Louis's Little Jane Doe. This was directed by Edra Sosa, who was a kid that grew up in the community when this case came out. Mm-hmm. The documentary came out in late 2022, so it's really the most recent reinvestigation of the case. Really, really recommend it. Mm. Today's case, as you might have gathered, um, takes us to St. Louis, Missouri in the 1980s. We haven't spent much time in urban areas in a hot minute, so. Yeah, that's so true. Let's talk about urban cities in America in the 1980s and what Mm -hmm. an interesting place they were. True that. In many urban areas during the 80s, St. Louis included, it was in a a time of attempted resets and rejuvenation with differing degrees of success. Mm. Urban abandonment and urban decay were an increasing problem throughout the 1970s and 1980s. Between 1940 and 1980, the population of St. Louis dropped from 815,000 to 450,000. Wow. So nearly half of its population just gone. I did not know that. So that left so many homes, apartments, warehouses, and other buildings abandoned, left to overgrowth and decay, which became an increasing crime problem. Mm. Obviously, this was a combination of a lot of events that occurred in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, including suburbanization, white flight, moving of industries across the country. And side note, we should just do a straight-up history podcast about the Rust Belt. Oh my gosh, that would be such a fun side project. And then we can release that right next to J.D. Vance's book and be like, here's what actually (laughs) happened. Here's where you're actually from. That was a really good episode of If Books Could Kill, too. I fucking told you I hate J.D. Vance. I I know, I know. I do now, too. As you should. Everybody should hate J.D. Vance. Come at me. I don't care. Um, (laughs) 
Anyway, so during the 1980s in St. Louis, there was a lot of attempts at big projects to get people back to the city, beautification and gentrification attempts. There was a lot... They were trying to figure out desegregations of schools still by the 1980s, and it was not going well for St. Louis. Mm. They were trying to condense schools because back in the day, most people walked to school, which meant that you had a lot of small local schools, and they were trying to condense them into bigger schools, which meant a lot of busing of everybody. Mm -hmm. And most people don't like that. In Chicago, they are still fighting this. Yeah, we're working on it in a smaller scale here. And it's been, um, boy, have we had some really feisty school board meetings lately. Oh, God, I love a good school board meeting. Oh, you should have seen the last one I had, like, if I if my personal life wasn't so deeply impacted by it, I would have had some popcorn and <laughs> M&Ms just watching it go down. But I was so stressed out. <laughs> but anyway, so they're trying to essentially, the city is really trying to figure out, like, how do we create safe communities and manage the flight that's going out of the city because while there's so much blight and abandonment throughout the city there were also still a lot of families and a lot of children that were growing up and trying to live their lives in the midst of all of this you know we like scene setting here don't we Mm -hmm. right i hope because that's where we're going to start off today and i think understanding this combination that there are lots of thriving communities and families all of that living together alongside a lot of this abandonment and urban decay. They're not separate from each other. No. I mean, it's like we talked about when we talked about Gary. Like, mm-hmm. those things are very much happening side by side, mm-hmm. you know? And there are, you know, real-life families also just, like, making it day-to-day in mm. that backdrop, too. It's not like it's just a blighted wasteland where people aren't actually living and working and going to school. and yeah. So today we're going to start off in the neighborhood near 5635 Clemens Avenue in St. Louis. This was a really mixed neighborhood in terms of there were a lot of families and a lot of kids that lived in the apartment complexes and townhouses. And also nearby there were the, uh, I believe I heard it called the Cabani housing projects. I'm going, I hope Mm. I'm saying that right. The Cabani housing projects that housed low-income families, those receiving public assistance. There were also a lot of those abandoned townhouses and warehouses around the area. High rates of crimes related to poverty, like prostitution and sex work, selling of drugs, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. On the afternoon of February 23rd, 1983, two teens who had separated from a family barbecue had crept down a couple of houses to an abandoned building at 5635 Clements. The boys would say that they were searching around for parts for their go-kart. They were hoping to find some copper pipes that they could use for their go-kart project. They creep down into one of these row house buildings. It's easy to get in there. The locks and doors had long since been broken. The building is cluttered with broken wine and liquor bottles, food wrappers, and detritus from years of neglect. They get past the first room where the sun was still a little bit shining in through the windows. They find nothing that they could use for their project. They go down the hallway and turn to the next room where it is pitch black. One of the boys pulls out a lighter to light up the room. In some stories, they say he just wanted to light up the room. Other stories say that he was lighting a cigarette. Either way, it doesn't really matter because the small glow from the lighter fills the room and the boys start to scan the area looking for the piping for their project. They immediately stop when they are met with an absolutely horrifying vision that no human is ready to see. The body of a girl 
nude from the waist down, wearing only a bright yellow sweater covered in blood. The boys immediately run out in a panic back to their parents at the barbecue. These boys would later only be identified as Mr. Harris and Mr. Thompson. They lived just two buildings down at 5579 Clemens. And that was where their family and several other families had gathered to have a party, just, you know, celebrating probably a nice day in February, one of those rarities. Hmm. They ran to their families, probably to their parents, screaming, rambling about what they had seen, not making any sense until one of the adults finally grabbed them, got them to calm down enough to speak to what they had saw. When the boys tell them about the body that they found in the building, a handful of the adults, about six to ten of them, head to the house, flashlights in tow. The boys show them where they had found the body. A few of the adults head inside to the building, where they then confronted with the gruesome scene. But with the added light of a few extra flashlights, they notice another piece in the scene. That the body had been beheaded, and the head was nowhere to be found. Police are immediately called to the scene, and they get there pretty quickly. The boys, accompanied by their parents, tell the police what happened, why they were in the building, and what they saw. Eventually, there would be some speculation as to, well, what were these boys doing in there? It's weird to be looking for car parts in an abandoned building. That doesn't seem to make any sense. It's very likely that the boys were scrapping for copper to sell, which seems pretty Mm -hmm. feasible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, yeah, you're going to have those questions, but... I would say just like growing up in a very depressed city, like the mm-hmm. idea of teenagers or like preteens bumping around an abandoned house or building, like, you know, you shouldn't do it. But I would say a plenty enough kids did and do that. It wouldn't be something that I would say like, whoa, like, what, this what is suspicious. There? Why would, there's no reason for you to be down there. Mm-hmm. And so eventually Edra Sosa, who directed the documentary, would actually get a hold of um, the homicide detective that was on the case, Brian McGlynn. And he asked him, like, did this seem odd to you? Were these boys at all suspicious to you? And McGlynn said, no, not for a second. These boys were damaged. He said, quote, they were damaged by what they saw. And as far as he cared about the scrapping, he's he did not care at all. He said, you know, even with new information coming out, stories changing after 40 years of the discovery of this body, He said, small changes in stories probably add more honesty to it, especially in this case. He's like, nobody's story is going to be exactly the same 40 years later. Mm -hmm. Everything that basically this uh, director, Sosa, went back and interviewed some of the families. They declined to be on camera, but they did share some information. They shared slightly different details from what was recorded from that day. And McGlynn said, yeah. None of the changes in details mm-hmm. concern me whatsoever. I've been doing this for decades. Details change over time, and it doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is kind of something that a lot of us in true crime need to kind of take to heart. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. But he said, basically, I'm not concerned about these boys, their family. Like, there was no suspicion of them at the time. They agreed to be interviewed. They were upfront and honest. It's fine. So the families call the police. The police get to the scene. They immediately start to tape off the row of houses. 
at the same time that the police are getting there, spectators are starting to arrive. Mm. Like I said, there were a lot of families that lived around this area. Details are being leaked and a crowd is forming around them. Kids are climbing in the trees and over hedges to look over the heads of police. They're chattering, sharing information. What do they see? Rumors are starting to form already. Part of the reason why there were so many people clamoring to see this is that set of row houses was already considered to be kind of like that spooky spot. Mm. I think feel like every neighborhood has like that spooky house or that spooky spot, right? Mm-hmm. So th- several of these buildings had already been abandoned. However, there was this one building where the body was found that was considered to be the spooky or the scary spot. Maybe there was some criminal activity. Maybe it was the place where shady people hung out. But right next door, one of the abandoned buildings had been turned into a makeshift candy shop Hmm. that one of the neighbors ran and the kids always often stopped in on the way home from school to buy some like 25 cent candy or whatever. And just around the corner, there were parks and schools to walk to, friends' houses, kids constantly running back and forth between the homes, to and from the parks. There were always people around. I mean, for I don't know what it looked like necessarily back then, but... Oh, it's pretty right now. now. Like, just from, like, yeah, just some Google Street View, it's, like, really lovely. Yeah. For the most part, it did look pretty nice. Also, just a block away, there was another neighborhood near the housing projects that was known for criminal activity. Drugs being sold, sex workers, violence, gang activity, all of that sort of thing. So again, there's all of this different types of actions and behavior and community intermingling. Mm. And so when police first arrived at the scene, that was their first immediate thought, was that this was the body of a sex worker that had been killed in a trick gone bad because it was the Mm. 80s. Mm -hmm. So... As police travel down to the basement of the building where they to find the body, they're very careful not to disrupt the scene. They're careful to attend to everything that they can identify. They note blood smears on the walls going down toward the hallway. They note any disruptions in the detritus, anything that they would have been able to see was somebody to hear recently. The body was easily found as it had not been covered in any way, just laying there in the debris. Now, Like I mentioned, the police at the time had assumed that it was the body of a sex worker. This assumption was based solely on the location of where the body was found, Mm. not on anything else. It was near a high crime area that the body was found nude from the waist down. So they said this was probably a sex worker or died in a sexual assault. Mm -hmm. That is until they approached the body. To do a preliminary investigation, they begin to turn it over to get any additional evidence. As soon as they turn it over, they find that this is the body of a very young girl who had not even begun puberty. Eventual estimates would place the girl between 8 and 11 years old. Her arms were tied behind her back using red and white nylon rope. The police noted chipped red and purple nail polish on the girl's fingernails. They found bloody smears on the walls. Her yellow sweater was covered in blood. But other than that, there was really little blood or evidence at the scene. Actually, a surprisingly little amount of blood. They had suspected that possibly the body had been drained prior to taking her there, and that most likely she was not killed at the scene. Yeah, and that... Oh, go go ahead. No, go ahead. 
I was just thinking, like, I mean, that tells us a lot about things that we are not going to be privy to, but Mm -hmm. that the scene of where this did actually, like, where the killing and the beheading took place would be an unbelievably bloody scene. So wherever that was. Yeah, we're going to talk about the autopsy and the autopsy review that they did for the movie, and it it's not good yeah 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 it's just that wherever the the scene of the killing was Mm -hmm. would be a really 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 intense scene and it just makes you wonder like how so I mean I've only been to St. Louis once so I can't speak to a ton of it observationally it looks like there's like um like a greenway like a beltway Mm mm-hmm kind of situation right there an island huh an island yeah (laughs) (laughs) which was my experience with a lot of like the boulevards in st louis um and then they would have kind of like varying degrees of woodedness Mm -hmm. just like driving around down there I, i looked up where i stayed in relation to to this killing it's about 15 minutes away yeah so it wasn't the same neighborhood or anything like that but just like driving around, like I was, I liked St. Louis because there were these like little pockets of parks everywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then also these like huge city parks. So, like, I was there to go to my cousin's wedding, mm-hmm. uh, which was in one of the big parks in St. Louis. But there was like these little tiny, cute little like just green spaces everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it would have been like that in the 80s as well, but just that like, those green spaces almost kind of have like a central park feel to them where like when you're in one of those big parks like the park that the zoo is at which is right by this house Mm -hmm. there are spots of it where you you can just kind of like feel like you're in the woods and then there are other spots that feel like very exposed and very very open but i thought that their park system was really really um interesting and intense that way that it could it could make you feel very very rural very quickly and then very very urban very quickly it reminds me of Chicago in that way that, like, I've never been to St. Louis. Sorry. I should go. I owe it a it's visit. It's very lovely. Yeah. Yeah. But it reminds me of Chicago in that way that, like, looking at maps, there are, like, these lovely little parks, like, big plotches of green space. Mm. And there are some, like, tiny little, like, kids play parks and things like that. And around the area where this was, it was more that there were kind of, like, smaller little, like, parks for kids to play in. There mm-hmm. were some, like, little wooded, like, not really wooded, but kind of tree-lined areas mm-hmm. where kids could go run through, go play. You Let's can see. certainly see that, like, some of this area, it gets very depressed very, very fast. Yeah. So when I first dropped my little guy on the address, I was like, oh, this is really, really lovely. And then we took our little trip a couple of blocks down, and it was definitely, like, very much blighted, mm-hmm. um, very Detroity, very, you know, abandoned houses, urban fields, like, that kind of stuff. So it did seem like it shifted relatively quickly, you know. I would really recommend watching um, the documentary because it it takes you through kind of, like, what the area looks like now, and there's a lot of pictures that... Um, and just citizens had donated about like what it looked like when they were kids, mm-hmm. um, what the parks looked like. 
And it had similar feel of like there were very, very family oriented areas and then there were like pretty close areas of a lot more blight and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So if you guys do look at the, there are crime scene photos. There are very graphic crime scene photos. Mm-hmm. Um, just be aware that they're out there and they are, they're tough to look at and it's hard to know exactly what you're looking at. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so now I forgot where it was. <laughs> we went off on a tangent here. Um, so yeah, we're looking at a scene here with this body that was left face down around debris and trash covered in blood headless nude with no attempt to cover it up though like the body was hidden but it wasn't covered which i think is always interesting Mm -hmm. like i said the police found the blood smears on the wall leading to the body but aside from that there was very little blood at the scene there was not much evidence to be found there were no fingerprints there were no footprints there was nothing else that they could find there and remember this is 1983 well before dna evidence had been a part of the detective's toolkit the only additional piece of evidence that they were able to find was a single pubic hair on the girl's thigh in some reports the pubic hair is reported to be white in others it's reported to be red Hmm. that has been preserved Hmm. but we have yet to get any good evidence or like dna off of it After police come, the body is covered and removed from the building. As the children and adults are starting to gather around the building, word starts to get out and people start to freak out a little bit. Parents start to freak out. When it's revealed that the victim was a little girl who had been beheaded, suddenly this vibrant group of families goes from what we would today call free-range parenting Mm. to um, basically these families just not letting their kids out of their sight. Mm -hmm. They went from just come home when the streetlights come on to we're going to get your fingerprinted. We're Mm -hmm. going to get you ID cards. You are not allowed out of sight. You are not allowed out to play alone. Parents started walking their kids to and from school or to and from the bus stop. They wouldn't let them be home alone. They wouldn't let them go over to friends' houses. Sosa, the documentary director, grew up in the area at the time and recalled his mother telling him, quote, you have to be in before it gets dark because they're cutting little kids' heads off now. I don't know if any of our older listeners will remember this, but in the 80s, they would have kits and stations set up at the mall to get your kids fingerprinted and blood types in in case they ever went missing. Hmm. Like, it was intense. That's interesting. Remember, right around this time was also the Adam Walsh case. It wasn't too long after the Etan Pats case. Mm -hmm. So the girl's body was discovered on February 28th. Her autopsy was completed just the next day on March 1st. They were able to obtain the following information from her autopsy. The girl was between age 8 and 11, had not yet begun puberty. Her remains weighed about 60 pounds. Her remains were measured to be about 4'10 without her head, estimated to be about 5'3 or 5'4 with her head, which would be pretty tall for a kid of that age. Yeah. So that height seemed to throw people off quite a bit, but they actually did, in the 2022 documentary, they did kind of a quick review of the autopsy. 
the autopsy, the medical examiner was a little suspicious of that too, because I mean, five three five four is the height of an adult female, mm-hmm. um, and this is a kid that had not yet gone through puberty, so we would not expect that height. One of the things she commented on is that it is not noted in the autopsy if that height was measured from toes to head or from heel to head. Oh, that would make a huge difference. Yes. Yeah. Typically, appropriately, height is measured from foot to head. Mm-hmm. It would often be done that height would be measured toe to head. The medical examiner comments that this is what they fucked up in Tupac's autopsy. Mm. True. Yeah, because I was also thinking like, okay, so she was about 70 pounds. Mm-hmm. Without her head, maybe we would call that 75 to 80 pounds. She's 60 pounds. Her remains were oh, 60, 60 pounds. So yeah, okay. with her so, head, yes. it'd be about 70. Probably getting her closer to 70. Mm-hmm. And also, to what degree was she exsanguinated? Is that noted there? Most. There was very little blood at the scene, meaning that it was likely drained entirely. Um, besides what was left on her shirt so a few pounds there but I guess like my my initial knee-jerk reaction to the height and the weight was that's really tall and very thin yeah for that height yeah right but for if the feet were flattened and it was heel to shoulder it was probably closer to Yeah. yeah and that was just a hunch that the medical examiner mentioned um mm-hmm. That that could be a possible six foot difference, which would have put the girl at about four ten total, yeah. like in total height, which would be a little bit more expected for an eight to ten year old. Mm-hmm. Like I was a tall kid, but pre puberty, not no. Yeah, I mean, I teach sixth graders, and I am five three, and I would say most of my sixth graders, the girls are taller than the boys, certainly, but. Almost none of them are my height. I think I can think of maybe two or three of them that are my height. Mm-hmm. So, and for somebody that has no like signs of puberty, it would be really rare to have that height to be mm-hmm. five three yeah. or five four. Yeah, I feel almost certain that's some kind of clerical mistake or measurement error. Yeah. Interestingly, she noted a couple of other errors that were often common in um, medical examinations of black people. Mm. They had. Poor medical examples of what bruising and mm-hmm. blood pooling looked like for medically trained individuals. This is still such an issue. It is still such an issue. And I really yeah. appreciated that the medical examiner um, kind of commented on that. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, like there's a comment in the examination that said, like, unable to determine blood pooling or something else due to client ethnicity. And I'm butchering the wording on that, but the medical examiner was like, we would not put this now. Mm -mm. No. And uh, yeah. Rant. Rant. (laughs) Insert rant here. (laughs) I'm sure you can, if you've been listening for more than a second and a half, you know what my rant's going to be. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So again, speculation when it comes to height due to was she measured by the toe or by the heel. The medical examiner did note, and this was in the original autopsy and verified by the follow-up autopsy, that the girl had no signs of prolonged abuse, no signs Mm -hmm. of neglect. She was in good health. She had no broken bones, no old bruises or old scarring. She was well taken care of. She was well fed. She 
appeared to be loved and cared for until the event that happened to her. Her sweater was new. Although the tags had been cut out, it was, it appeared new. There were no tears or pilling. Um, none of those like little fuzzballs that you get after you wash a sweater one too many times. Mm. However, at the time of her death, her stomach was empty of food. There was semen found on her body. There was bruising around what remained of her neck, indicating that she had been manually strangled before the decapitation. Hmm. They identified long, linear striations around her neck, cut marks that were indications that there had been a few attempts at decapitation before it was completed. There were no scars or cuts on her torso or extremities. Decapitation occurred after death. There were cuts made at C2 and C3, so cervical um, vertebrae. Sorry, I have a migraine. (laughs) I'm in trouble with word finding. Um, There were cuts at C2 and C3, so two of the top cervical, two and three from the top cervical vertebrae from your neck going downward at a right angle. Mm. However, it was severed at C4 and C5, so down. Another Mm. two sets of vertebrae. The cut was not clean. It was likely done in a rush or a fury without knowledge or knowing where to cut or what they were doing. This was not an expert surgical. This was a rush job. Mm. It was likely done with a heavy bladed instrument. Examination of the internal organs gave further evidence that little Jane Doe was beaten and strangled before her death. Blood was found in the lungs as well as in the stomach meaning that she inhaled and swallowed blood. This girl met a very violent death. Evidence of sexual assault was found via the semen and the pubic hair on her body, as well as tearing between the vagina and the anus. The entire vaginal wall was nearly ruptured. The presence of hemorrhaging indicates that this attack happened while she was alive. Further examination of her body revealed what happened to her after death. Mold was found around her neck wound and other soft tissue areas. The mold helped to provide a little bit of a timeline. It let them know that the base, that she had been in that basement for about four to five yeah. days. Being in a cold, damp area also led to some skin slippage and what they call washerwoman syndrome. Basically, the sliding of skin around the wounds and the wrinkling of skin. So that kind of like when you have your hands in water for too long, it wrinkles all up. There were scrapes and damage on her knee, likely from a fight during the attack. And that's where they found more skin slippage and mold. And there was tape residue and dust on her feet that it appeared that they tried to bind her feet. But it's possible that the binding binding came off. The mold would become important. Mm -hmm. Because, like I said, the mold gives us an idea that she was there for several days before anybody found her. Mold doesn't start to form for at least 24 hours of kind of static position in an area where the spores can attach and grow. The size of it, and they would eventually be able to identify the specific mold that was on her, gave them them a good timeline for, if not when she was killed, but when she was placed into the basement. Now, for years, there was this ongoing rumor that the girl had a mild form of spina bifida, um, known as spina bifida occulta. 
This is the most mild form of spina bifida. It often goes unnoticed or unaddressed um, because there's no major nerve or spinal damage. You might notice some kind of movement limitations as you get older, but there's none of kind of the classic spinal problems or motoric issues that we often associate with spina bifida. Where did the rumor come from? No idea. Literally Hmm. no idea. It's mentioned in so many places, but it's not on the autopsy report. It's not on the police reports. Hmm. Even the detective, um, McGlynn, says, no, we ruled that out. I don't know why it kept getting repeated. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's a weird detail to get in there, and I think it's interesting to kind of think about how these things slip in and it all it only takes one person to repeat them for them to mm-hmm. become kind of canonized yeah yeah i just think that's like a that's a really odd rumor especially f- to say like oh but it was mild like it's mild and nobody would have no- really noticed it her parents probably didn't even notice it not really the kind of thing that you like chit chat about i guess it's just odd yeah i know and i i went through a lot of documents trying to figure out like where this was first stated and I couldn't figure it out. Does her autopsy mention like a sacral dimple or anything like that? No. Hmm. And they even ask. So again, in the in the autopsy, they have the medical examiner rereading through the autopsy report and he's like, does it say anything about the spina bifida? And she's like, no. Hmm. No, that's nowhere in here. That is so interesting. So, well, the medical team is gathering evidence and testing. Police are desperately sending out searching searches for missing kids. Interesting note. So at this time in 1983 in St. Louis, police chief Leroy Atkins was the first black police chief in St. Louis. And he really wanted to make a point with this case that our girls will not be neglected. They will not be set aside. This case became really symbolic for him. And I think for the entire city that missing black children, murdered black children will not go uninvestigated. Mm-hmm. So they went hard in their attempts to identify this girl. Um, like many unidentified victims, she would initially be labeled as a Jane Doe, but that never seemed quite right for her. It wasn't enough. She would soon be referred to throughout the community and eventually by police as Precious Doe, Precious Hope Doe, and Our Little Jane Doe. Police kept her body with the medical examiner for as long as they could, hoping that the girl's parents would eventually show up to claim her and tell her story. But that never happened, unfortunately. The search for her family would begin with knocking on doors, checking attendance rolls at the local school, going just door to door, house to house, school to school. They were convinced that somebody had to know this girl. Somebody had to be missing a child or notice that a child was no longer in their community. But nothing local was showing up. No missing girls that matched little Jane Doe's description ever showed up in St. Louis. So they expanded their search into other kind of collar counties to St. Louis and eventually into southern Illinois. Again, contacting schools for attendance attendance records, contacting foster agencies. Did you have any runaways? Did you have any missing kids? Foster agencies, schools, daycares, after-school programs, everybody was contacted. Because based on the autopsy, this kid was cared for, she was loved, she was nourished, she had to be missed by somebody. 
But everything came back empty. It was clear that they were trying, like, this was back in the day of paper attendance records. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to remind everybody, it is not as quick as a quick uh, control F. You had to just dig and scan through roll after roll of paper attendance records, or maybe those dot matrix printers that I still love the sound of. Mm, Very comforting sound. Such a comforting sound. But nothing ever happened. They ran, the police ran ads in African American newspapers and magazines, just like missing girl. If anybody is missing or knows of a girl of this description, please contact the St. Louis Police Department. This was also before NICMIC and other agencies were founded to be a centralized spot for missing children. I mean, this was before the faces on the milk carton. This was at that same kind of cultural moment where we're starting to become more aware of missing children. Yeah. And I mean, the the extremely unfortunate fact here also is what what information do you have to share? You can't share... Her, what her face looks like you can't share how she had her hair styled you have nothing but like a height that's probably wrong mm-hmm. and a weight and maybe a skin tone mm-hmm. but that is so little information that you have to really really get lucky in the sense that a family is also like feverishly looking mm-hmm. while you're feverishly looking in the other way yeah right? yeah yeah It really just has to be grunt work and footwork and luck, honestly. And then when, I mean, at that, you know, at that time too, like if somebody did come forward and say, I'm worried this is my daughter, how can you confirm it? Mm -hmm. That's for next week. Mm. (laughs) Or next, my next case. (laughs) Ah. Spoilers. Interesting. Um, Police would eventually reach out to contact every single state police agency requesting that they look at their missing persons reports for a missing african-american girl 8 to 11 years old fitting the description nothing ever came back some states did look and reported nothing but like honestly and this isn't necessarily a knock but i don't believe that all 49 other states looked if I'm being oh, completely yeah, of honest. of course they didn't. Yeah, no, of course they didn't. They have their own messes to take care of. They have their own things. Mm-hmm. Like, it would have taken hours to look for, through those. Yeah. And again, this is like, you're looking for a needle in a haystack. You know, it's also, I don't know if they would be thinking this at the time, but just thinking about the, the scene and how and where she was found, mm-hmm. it really screams local. And I can talk about that, like, when Mm -hmm. we start to maybe theorize or think about that, but... Everything screams local, and that is why the police put so much work into knock on every single door, check with every single classroom. Mm -hmm. But no one was reporting a missing girl. And I think that that is where they got really stuck and really frustrated and where they start to feel like they were chasing a ghost. Yeah. But tell me your thoughts when it comes to, like, this being local. Where would you start? What what about it screams local to me is the fact that there had to be two scenes. Mm-hmm. A murder scene and then the scene there she was left tells me that the perp knows enough about the area that he would have two places to go. Mm-hmm. 
that he would have a particular comfort level in what he was doing to be mm-hmm. able to move her, which I think also um, communicates comfort in the sense of I know where I'm at, you know, mm-hmm. I know that this is going to be a place I'm not going to be bothered or disturbed or whatever. I also think that the I, I'm very curious about the act of beheading. Mm-hmm. But when you see that, and in some situations, it's it's to de-identify. Mm-hmm. And if you're panicking about somebody being identified easily, that also implies local to me, too. Mm-hmm. But I also could see maybe the girl not being local, but the perp being local, just in the sense of having the two scenes, you know? And I, I think that, that her isotope analysis implies that, too. Are we going to talk about oh, that? Oh, we're going to talk about the isotope analysis. Yeah. Because okay. I yeah. want to go through kind of like the timeline of things as they happen and then mm-hmm. kind of talk about theories. Because the isotope analysis wouldn't happen for decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I just think it, it communicates that one or both parties is local. Yeah. Almost certainly, I would think that the perpetrator is local. Just because of all of those factors and knowing knowing where to go. And, and being comfortable enough to, to create two scenes. I think because, like, these row houses were so, like, there was a pe- there were people in this row house, and then this person was using this row house, but then there were, there were these abandoned ones. Mm-hmm. To me, they had to know which ones were not being used. Yeah. So we'll talk about it. All right. So police are really, really doing their damnedest here. It feels like they're chasing a ghost. Eventually, a few leads would trickle in. An informant would call in a tip. So this was a police informant that called a tip in, saying that the police would find the girl's head buried in a specific location in Waterloo, Illinois. They were able to give the specific location. I didn't write it down because police were quick to follow up and go to that specific location, but the head was never found. And further investigation of this police informant um, would find that he had previously been found guilty of lying to the police. Team, the Little Jane Doe team, would also collaborate with another well-known investigation going at the time, the Adam Walsh case. So Adam Walsh case infamously, the case of another boy who had gone missing. In his case, only his head was recovered and his body has never been recovered. Dang, I forgot that part. Yeah. I had to I had to look it up because I was like, have they still never found it? So this was not so much a collaboration because the Adam Walsh case was in Florida. Mm-hmm. They had no reason to believe that they had a suspect in common or anything mm-hmm. else. But really, they were trying to share investigative strategies. Mm-hmm. They thought, okay, there can't be that many ways to investigate a beheading of a child. Like, let's share information. Let's share strategies. Um, the Adam Walsh case was eventually solved. Mm. Little Jane Doe would be held at the morgue for over nine months, waiting for someone to claim her remains. Mm. However, no one ever did. And eventually near the end of the year, in 1983, her body was released for burial. She would be given a small ceremony attended by only four people. Of them, Detective Burgoon who had been working tirelessly on the case to figure out who she was. The ceremony lasted only 10 minutes before she was laid to rest in Washington Cemetery, buried in a pauper's grave with no headstone or identification. However, days after her burial, a local monument company would reach out to the police and ask that they be allowed to donate a monument to her. They felt this girl deserves something. She deserves to be known. 
There was some back and forth. Initially, the police said, no, you can't do that. But there were petitions by local students and by the monument company so that eventually a marker would be placed listing only little Jane Doe's date of death and the quote, the saddened hearts were healed in knowing the pain of life is over and the beauty of the soul is revealed. Of course, she was buried, she was laid to rest, but that didn't mean that the search or the story was over. Police continued to take tips, increasingly ridiculous tips to be completely honest. Mm. Multiple psychics would get involved in this case. Oy vey. vey. And Detective Burgoon, Detective Burgoon worked night and day on this case. And I do believe that he had the best of intentions of getting it solved. Mm -hmm. He listened to every single psychic, every single crackpot that called. With his reasoning being, well, why not? We have nothing left to lose at this point. What else can I do? Spoilers, he was wrong when it came Mm -hmm. to what else do we have to lose. Mm. The psychics gave many, many interpretations, many, many prognostications, each one promising that they knew where her head would be found, who she was. One said her head would be found um, on on a boat in Mexico, that her killer was a drifter traveling through Texas. All of these just crazy outlandish theories that had literally no backing other than i saw it in a psychic vision Mm -hmm. each and every one was investigated and quickly easily disproven now we get to talk about tv psychic noreen rainier of the tv show sightings Mm. in my research i watched a couple of episodes (laughs) because you know i love trash tv from the 80s Yes, who doesn't? Oh, for our new listeners, I don't believe in psychics for a fucking second. I have said it every time (laughs) we have talked about a psychic on this case. I think Mm -hmm. they're a waste of time. I think they're fame chasing. I think one in every 20 thinks they have good intentions. Mm -hmm. That's a very feisty disclaimer. It is. It is. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so uh, Noreen Rainier requested to be involved in this case and i'm sure making many many promises that she could at least get them publicity and attention on her tv show but she made one request she said i need you to send me something so that i can get a feel i need to feel her so that i can get a psychic power something whatever um and she requested that they send her the yellow sweater that little jane doe was found in Mm-mm-mm. mind you the sweater that had the blood evidence, the DNA, probably more evidence than they scientifically had the ability to gather at that time. Mm-hmm. It was the only thing she was wearing. It was crucial, crucial. Absolutely crucial evidence. And police say yes. I hate this so much. Yeah, we'll send you the sweater. So police pack up the bloodstained, evidence-filled sweater and ship it off in certified mail to Florida to Noreen Rainier. Mm -mm. She signs it. They get verification that she received the sweater in the mail. And that is the last anyone has ever seen, the bloodstained sweater. Yep. Noreen Rainier 
claims that she did her little psychic thing. She got her feel. And then she packed up the sweater and shipped it off back into the mail. She did not. I don't believe she did. I, I don't think she did. It was never received by the St. Louis police. It was supposedly lost in the mail. Detective McGlynn, one of the other detectives that works in the case, um, insisted in the documentary that he got a receipt showing that she had sent a package back. Hmm. That she had sent a package. Yeah. And he insists, he's like, no, it was genuinely lost in the mail. It had, why would, why would anybody keep this? It's such a crucial piece of evidence. Good. Uh. I have so many feelings about this. First, I have feelings about how the fuck can the police in such a crucial case send their biggest piece of physical evidence and just ship it to somebody there's not a police, there's not an investigator or a detective with the evidence. There's mm-hmm. so much contamination that can be happening when it's being shipped in the mail. I mean, this is, you know, like you talk about the importance of chain of custody, mm-hmm. right? And the fact that like anybody that handles a bag has to sign a form, mm-hmm. right? So the idea that like we have these best practices in chain of custody, but somebody is just like well i guess we're desperate enough to send this thing off in the mail and that's literally what it was is that they were desperate enough but why wouldn't you just say you're welcome to come here and we'll you know you can sit in the station and you can touch it with a gloved hand or do anything like that because she's also like she's prominent she's wealthy she's making more than a hearty living doing what she's doing it's not as though she would not have the means to grab a flight to st louis and do this Mm-hmm. In, in the proper setting. Like, if you're going to do it. If, if you're, you're going do it, to do it let right psychics setting. just manhandle your evidence, there's a proper way to do it. Mm. But then to not follow up on, oh, we just lost it. Mm. Oh, whoops, it got lost in the mail. So I'm then s- is her home searched? Mm. I mean, she has evidence in a murder case. Not, there is no mention that her home was searched. There was no mention that the local post office or anything was searched. I mean, honestly, if this was me, I would be tearing apart every inch of the post office. Oh, yeah. Every plane that they use, every conveyor belt that they use. Like, especially now. So this was in the 90s. I believe that it was in the 90s that this happened, that they lost it. We are starting to see new evidence forms coming up into play. New mm-hmm. blood typing, new DNA typing, new ways to look at fiber matching and that sort of thing. Yeah. I I believe the bitch still has it. I, I would think so, too. I just, I'm really struck by the desperation, mm-hmm. but at the same time, the carelessness, like, that that you could be both so desperate and so careless simultaneously is that's just really jarring to me honestly Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah yeah because they were desperate enough to let psychics have a say in this investigation and then what was it like i mean that's such an extreme level of we have nothing to lose like yeah it turns out you actually do have something to lose Mm -hmm. and noreen has never spoken about this incident She has declined any interviews surrounding it. And like I said, Mm. to my knowledge, her home has never been searched. Yeah. 
She just said, whoops, got lost in the mail. So all of, all they have left with the loss of the sweater mm-hmm. is her DNA and a single pube. Mm-hmm. Well, they don't have her DNA, remember, because she was buried before DNA typing came out. I mean, they have. They have. Would they not have taken her. any from her? They did. They did. But like, they didn't. They yeah. hadn't run DNA tests at this time. Right. 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 Yeah. But they have it. Yeah, right. Like right. it's locked up somewhere. Yeah. <sighs> and the ropes. They have the rope that she was bound. Yes, in. they have the ropes. But that's it. That's it. Yeah. That was a a dumb move. I am. I'm. St- I'm still so pissed about that. Like, I'm sorry. You should. I don't care if it's forty years later. You should be searching this woman's house. Mm-hmm. there's something very like narcissistic about like i'm gonna be a tv psychic oh yeah oh yeah and i'm gonna insert myself into this tragic fucking case Mm-hmm. and i'm gonna be irreverent enough to this entire process to ask for evidence and then probably keep it yeah i'm gonna be so fucking like privileged to be like mm, can you just ship your biggest piece of evidence to florida because i can't mm-hmm. come up there yeah, that's outrageous. Another mislead came in 2001 when a woman named Sharon Nolte came forward saying that little Jane Doe was actually a Native American girl named Shannon Johnson. Nolte was so invested in this case and proving that little Jane Doe was Shannon that she spent $20,000 of her own money on the case. By 2001, the science had finally advanced enough and that biological evidence that they had kept from little Jane Doe was DNA tested. So the DNA evidence that they had was tested against Shannon Johnson and it was a sample provided by Nolte and it completely ruled out the possibility of it being Shannon. Mm. I don't think that the police ever thought that it was actually Shannon, but I think that they were just like, sure, we'll do the test and whatever you want to do. I haven't looked at the pictures of Shannon Johnson, but based on like the reports and what the police were saying, it, it was never a possibility. Mm. In 2009, it was proposed because of the increase in technology or the improvements in technology and the improvements in DNA testing, the different types of evidence that they could get. It was proposed to exhume the body and see what other evidence they could find. The St. Louis Police Department gets in touch with the Smithsonian Institute, who agree that they can look at soil and mold samples to do an isotope analysis, which would help to narrow down where this little girl came from. However, the police then go to exhume the body. They go to where the headstone was placed, and they dig, and little Jane Doe's body is not there. This just makes me so sad. So here's some background on what happened. So Washington Cemetery was a private family-owned cemetery and a historic cemetery. The owner of the cemetery had completed suicide in the, in the years prior. And since that time, no family member had stepped up to take over ownership and care of the cemetery. And it had fallen into complete and utter disrepair. Mm. Like, we are talking... Not even just like sunken gravestones and poor records. We're talking about cracked caskets, sunken burials, sunken headstones, shifted soil, bones coming up from the ground. Mm. 
It's so awful. Caskets were buried on top of other caskets, so there was no record of who was actually where they were supposed to be. Bodies were missing. Bones were found above ground. There was evidence of possible grave robbing. The St. Louis PD would dig up, like I said, where little Jane Doe was supposed to be. But there was nobody there. Mm. They dug in the next spot over and the next spot over. And maybe she's behind. Maybe she's over here in this row. They dug up so many graves that eventually the medical examiner said, no, we're we're not doing this anymore. We can't just Mm. blindly keep digging up bodies. This is disrespectful to everyone. Yeah. So the exhumation was placed on hold until they could come up with a better plan to find her and a better plan with a better chance of actually recovering the body. That better plan finally once again emerged with science. Mm. Yay. Yay, science. In 2013, a computer science researcher from Washington University, um, whose name was Abby Stylianu, Stylianu, Abby Stylianu, got involved. She was able to, using old photos from the original burial ceremony, mapped against the U.S. Geological Survey, used computer models to triangulate the exact location of where she was actually buried. What a badass. Such a fucking badass. We love you, Abby. This is so cool. Mm -hmm. Like, the mechanics of how to do it are pretty simple, the triangulation, but it just takes a lot of, it takes a lot of data and a lot of time and kind of precise manipulation of the data. Mm Mm-hmm. So in 2013, after years of research and kind of this precise manipulation of this data, they were able to locate the body, and Abby and her team were able to give a location within eight inches of where the body was found. Good for her. Fuck yeah. So now that they had an exact location, they were able to exhume the correct body. They were able to extract the soil samples to run an isotope analysis to narrow down where little Jane Doe was from. Two evaluations were completed independently, one by the Smithsonian and one by NECMEC, identifying that she most likely spent the majority of her time in the southern or midwestern states. Specifically, I'm going to list off the states that it was listed that she would be from. Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Michigan, Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, South Carolina, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Indiana, or West Virginia. So that sounds like a lot. Mm -hmm. But we're basically saying that she is likely from the southern or the midwestern states. The state that she was found in was not on that list, and neither was Illinois, which is just across the river. Correct. So this girl traveled to where she would be either killed or left for dead. Mm -hmm. At the same time, new DNA samples were taken, which were tested and uploaded to GEDmatch. We love GEDmatch. We do. Attempts have been made at genetic genealogy in working through the case of Little Jane Doe. This is one of the oldest and most worked cases at Paraben Labs, 
the lab that works closely with GEDmatch to do the genetic genealogy. Um, the caseworker on this case, her name is Cece Moore. She is interviewed on Our Precious Hope Revisited. Cece Moore talks about how um, genetic genealogy has been used to solve over 220 cases so far. But when they're working on cases like this, they can only work with public records and only working with families that are willing to share their stories and to share their DNA and their medical information. One of the things that she talks about, um, and this is where I texted you and I was like, I scripted (laughs) this out, but I think we're just going to converse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things that Cece Moore talks about is specifically there's a lot of difficulty in conducting genetic genealogy with African-American families because of America's racist history. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Do you want to take over from here about kind of some of the unique difficulties? Let me ask a question just real quick before I do that. So Parabon also, they're the ones that do the, um, like the DNA based sketches. Have they done one of her? So they have DNA based sketches. So the phenotypic analysis is really unreliable. Mm -hmm. The detectives asked about, um, doing a sketch based on it. And they said, because of her age, And because of the limited genetic samplings that they have, it would be a shot in the dark and they don't want to put out any kind of false hope that it would be any level of accurate. Yeah, okay, that's fair. Because, you know, kids' faces at that age, especially that awkward pre-puberty age, are so unreliable. Yeah, you can't necessarily predict, like, where's your nose going to land or out or any of that stuff. Yeah, that's that's fair. So did your cheekbones pop out yet? You know, you know, right? Yeah. So yeah, there are lots and lots and lots of complexities with um, doing genealogy uh, related to African American families due to America's racist history. I mean, and there are lots of factors that go into that. One of the the big factors is that genetic genealogists typically, like when you're working a case. The number of matches in a traditional case could be, and traditional is code for white, unfortunately, like, right? But, but you know, one of the primary challenges is that, like, if you are looking at genetic genealogy, one of the things that you're going to look at first is the matches that you have available when you have that, when you run that DNA sample mm-hmm. through the system. And typically, what is going to pop up is going to be, like, third to fourth cousin level matches. Mm-hmm. Which is somebody that, like, you would share your great-great-great-grandfather with your third cousin. Mm-hmm. So uh, that is a pretty far-removed match, right? Like, you do not know your third cousins. I do not know my third cousins. Most of us do not know our third cousins. Mm-hmm. But if you can identify those, you know, kind of those people and work inward, then you can you can work with that, right? But... A lot of those matches and finding like a common ancestor, who's the common ancestor, depends on there being records of Mm -hmm. your ancestors. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, I texted you, like my great, great, great grandfather was born in 1857. Mm -hmm. Um, Precious Hope Doe is probably 15 years older than me. Her great, great, great grandfather was born into slavery, Mm -hmm. which meant that his records were probably 
not kept. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very often, families were not kept together mm-hmm. um, during American slavery. So, you know, kids were not necessarily kept with their families. So those biological ties were not necessarily anywhere near as easy to trace as they would be for families where your entire family lives in a church ledger for mm-hmm. 600 years, yeah. right? Yeah. So my my mom's big into genealogy and we have long, long Catholic roots. Every birth, christening, baptism mm-hmm. has a note in the ledger. There are yeah. church records for all of that stuff. And mm-hmm. we can go back many generations on that, but those records simply don't exist in a lot of American, a lot of places in America. Yeah, they really don't. And so you combine that with just the general, like, in order to do, like, an ancestry DNA kit, you have to be willing to have your information also be out there. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of a lot of really good reasons for people of color to not want to have their information available to government databases and, mm-hmm. and things like that, too. So... The consumers of these DNA kits are um, an extremely big majority white and Asian mm-hmm. customers. Yeah. Um, and so you, you put all those factors together and it becomes really, really, really difficult to find those matches. So, you know, like if there were matches to be found, but you can't figure out the common ancestor how do you figure out who and how the the links fit together to to get from this person to that person mm-hmm. right so it's not impossible but it presents a much different set of challenges than it would like in other cases that we've seen it used effectively right yeah cuz like i think that a lot of us think that we can kind of upload our dna and just get like a whole family tree just auto filled in but like you said the most likely matches you're going to get are second, third, fourth cousins. And that means four, five, six generations back. Mm-hmm. People that you've never met, you've never known. Yeah. And it just having, I think having like a family record that goes back that far is a kind of privilege mm-hmm. that um, you don't often think about because it's not like the kind of privilege that you're like faced with every day necessarily. But I mean, certainly, like, that was my pandemic hobby when COVID first hit was doing my family trees. And I was able to trace my mother's family tree back to the 1100s. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's church records. Mm-hmm. And I was able to trace my father's family tree back to my father. So, I mean, it just goes to show that, like, where you come from has an extremely significant impact on the ability to build out that information. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that we run the risk. And again, I've kind of been thinking about this more with my next case that I'm covering is opening up family secrets. When we start looking at DNA and relationships that we may or may not have ever known of. Mm hmm. And those are family secrets that a lot of people don't want to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, Cece Moore had said that she has worked really, really tirelessly on this case. 
And she's gotten a couple of good leads of people that she reaches out to. So again, like when these kind of genetic detectives are reaching out, they might find a a link, a second, third, fourth cousin, and they might reach out to you and they say, hey, do you know this person? Do you have anybody else in your family? Like, here's the case I'm working on. I think you might be distantly connected to this Jane Doe. Do you have any other family members that might be willing to donate their DNA to this? Mm -hmm. And she has said she's gotten two good leads on that and both of them hung up on her. Wow. Yeah. Because, again, you're opening up the possibility of family secrets. Mm -hmm. And that's a really scary, it's a scary door to open. Mm -hmm. It really is. However, despite all of that, Cece Moore has said that they are one submission away from identifying this girl. If the mm. right person shares their data, if the right person uploads their DNA kit to GEDmatch, they might be able to solve this. And to be clear, that's a two-step process. Like mm-hmm. if you do an Ancestry yes. DNA or a 23andMe, that information is not automatically going into a public database like yes. GEDmatch. If you do that and you want your data to be on GEDmatch, which... I mean, there are pros and cons, Mm -hmm. but it would be great if everybody felt good doing it. Mm -hmm. People have very good reasons to not feel good doing it. 100%. Um, But you then have to pull your DNA profile from Ancestry or 23andMe. It's It's not a complicated process, but it's like a weird file, and it takes a very long time because we have very long genetic codes. Yes. Um, And then you have to upload it into GEDmatch, and that also takes a pretty significant amount of time because of the kind of information it's contained. Um, and you have to authorize that that information be used in investigations mm-hmm. like this. So this is not like a, oh, I did an ancestry test. Maybe I can be helpful in this process. That's not accurate. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's that two-step process. There are, I mean, if you are just interested in your history and connecting with cousins and family and all of that, ancestry is a great tool. If you're interested in being able to share that publicly to possibly solve a case, that's where you take that information from Ancestry or 23andMe or whatever, and you upload it to GEDmatch. They walk you through it. It's not too terribly difficult because they want people to do it. So they try to make it relatively easy. I have my little Ancestry kit right here that I'm going to do this week. (laughs) And then we'll see. Let's find out all your secrets. Let's find out all my secrets. So, like I said, they they have attempted the genetic phenotyping. This was you. <laughs> this was my next like bullet point in this after the, the I'm sorry. Stuff. I just hear a pair about. I'm like, ooh, sketches. Yeah. No, they attempt. They people have asked about it, but Parabon has basically said it's not reliable enough for her age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So. This is the kind of case that has taken the hearts and kind of brains of everybody that hears about it. At the time that it happened, like I said, it scared families. It terrified kids. And I think that the further we get away from it, people just desperately want this girl to be put to rest. There have been two big theories that have persisted. So let's talk about theories. (laughs) Uh, Two big theories that have persisted as far as what happened to little Jane Doe. The police believe that what happened to her was done by a family member. Now, police say they're shaky about this. They can't be certain. But the thought is that this was a very personal attack. 
It was close contact. It was violent. There had to be a level of privacy in committing this attack. And they feel that the fact that no one has been, has come forward reporting a missing little girl, despite their dedicated searches, police feel like this had to be a family member that did this. It had to be somebody that could say, oh, no, it's fine. She's just blah, blah, blah. That could make an excuse for why they had a missing girl and why that why there was no missing child report. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that one? Run me back that again. I need to make sure my brain is processing it. So police believe that this had to be a fi- that this was most likely done by a family member because of the personal close contact and the violent attack, and primarily because no one ever came forward to report a missing child. Hmm. I, it wasn't my impulse, but I can understand the logic. Mm-hmm. I guess my, my question mark with that is that you, it, that would take a special kind of sociopath mm-hmm. to be able to do that, um, to, to violently rape a child, to then behead that, strangle that child, behead that child, mm-hmm. uh, exsanguinate that child, and then take the head somewhere and the body somewhere else um to do that to somebody that you know intimately before the crime that would be a a very very unique perpetrator i would think and there are unique perpetrators but oh there certainly are i'm also very struck by um there being no attempt to cover her, which we typically associate with uh, familiarity or intimacy when there's mm-hmm. an attempt to cover or yep. like reclothe, um, mm-hmm. things like that. So that theory doesn't parse super well with me, I guess. the, But the and it was your point kind of offline, right, that like one way to explain her coming in from out of state to being there would be like a family visit or a family vacation or what yep. have you. Yeah. Um, and it kind of folding out that way. Mm-hmm. So I guess my my response to that would be like, I could see that scenario. I couldn't, I, I have a harder time believing it though to be like a very, very close relationship. Yeah, right? I think the victimology doesn't totally fit that. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said about the way that she was left and all of that. I think... Like I said, I think if that is the case, yeah, she was probably visiting from out of town. She was visiting an uncle or a cousin or something like that. That would explain why nobody in the community knew this girl. Yeah. I I do think, though, there's no way in hell that this person who did this didn't do other things. Mm Mm-hmm. So that gives me to my next theory. Mm. The other theory that has been tossed around was that little Jane Doe was a victim of the serial killer Vernon Brown. Do you know Vernon Brown? Mm. I don't. Tell me about Vernon Brown. So Vernon Brown was active in the area at the time. In in the 1970s, he was convicted of molesting a 12-year-old girl for which he would spend four years in an Indiana prison. After his release, nine-year-old Kimberly Campbell would be found deceased, victim of a sexual assault and manual strangulation in his grandmother's home. He would not be convicted for this. There was reportedly not enough evidence to arrest him at the time. Vernon Brown would eventually move to St. Louis and change his name, where he would be found guilty of sexual assault and the murder of nine-year-old Janet Perkins, 
who was found with her hands tied behind her back and who died by strangulation with a nylon rope. Hmm. He would eventually admit on video to this murder as well as to the murder of 19-year-old Sinetta Ford in 1985, who was found dead by strangulation and left in a basement. Hmm. In 1986, Vernon Brown would be convicted of the murders of Janet and Sinetta. Despite many interrogations about the case of Little Jane Doe and other cold cases, he would never admit to other murders. Hmm. Vernon Brown was executed in 2005 via lethal injection. Um, So we can't get any additional information from him. However, when we look at victim profiles and locations where victims were found, as well as reports given by his stepchildren about him being an incredibly sadistic man Hmm. he appears to be a promising lead where would little jane doe be in his timeline so he moved to st louis in the early 1980s so he was living in st louis at the time so 1983 was when little jane doe was murdered he was arrested for the he was arrested for the murders in 1985 and convicted in 1986 for Janet and Sonetta. Mm. But no, did he do anything to, I mean, obviously those two were, they were identified. So was anything done to like obscure their identities? Like it's the beheading. That... Yeah, it's, it's the beheading that stands out mm-hmm. obviously in little Jane Doe's case. Mm-hmm. But no, there was nothing I mean, done. I think it's. It's compelling. It's interesting. It makes you wonder if, I mean, if she was one of his victims, but something about her was different. Like Mm -hmm. there was a relation there or something like that. Yeah. And that caused it to have to go down differently. But I would be curious, like, did his other killings involve two locations? Did they involve um, a similar type of rope used or a similar type of tie or... A similar rope was used. A similar position of the victim was used, including um, hands tied behind the back with a nylon rope. And remember, Jane Doe's cause of death was manual strangulation, yeah, just yeah. like Janet Perkins. I do think it's compelling. I would be curious about why he wouldn't confess to that when he's confessing to other things well they only had the evidence for they ha- they already had mm. the evidence for janet and sinetta oh okay so he's um, like yeah yeah like you're coming to me with this evidence i may yeah. as well say it. yeah he never confessed in the kimberly campbell murder who was uh found in his grandmother's basement mm. um he never can confess to that one or to any other murders yeah. so i mean I- it's it's a it's a solid theory. I feel like we really want to believe that murderers like confess to everything on their deathbed and they just don't. And they don't. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of things do happen at deathbed confessions, but, um, but yeah, I mean, there are still reasons to, to keep your secrets. Right. So yeah, I think that would be really, that's a really interesting theory. I think it's a solid theory. It seems plausible. It seems possible. I just, the big question mark would be why the mm-hmm. beheading. Like, why I feel like it's yes. it's it's probably it seems very likely to me that the beheading was done to um, obscure identification. Mm-hmm. 
So, because my need, my initial response to the idea was, um, that's a really awful trophy to take. Yeah. But it's been done, mm-hmm. right? But the the lack of like um, technical skill in how it was done mm-hmm. makes that seem less realistic to me. Because I feel like when we've seen that happen, it's been people that know what to do um, mm-hmm. to do that. So, I mean, I my hunch is that it was done to obscure her identity. That her head was probably buried somewhere we're also right on the banks of the mississippi river Mm -hmm. possibly put in the water um so yeah like if it is vernon brown why why that Mm -hmm. so i wouldn't think that it would have to be other cases where somebody was necessarily beheaded but I would be curious to see other attempts to obscure somebody's identity yeah yeah i didn't dig too much into vernon brown's history um Mm. He might be another good case to do. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. I think it's promising out of, you know, a case that doesn't have many leads. It's something. But we do have a pube. We do have a pube. What are we doing with that? The pube has been DNA tested. It has been run through all of the CODIS and all of that shit, and we got nothing. So you would think that if it was Vernon Brown's, that would have come up. Well, would they have taken his DNA in 1986? I mean, he died in 2005. Yeah, I don't know if they would have taken... Like, if he was already arrested, would they have done it? Like, I I don't know if they do that, like, for people that are already in prison. I think they do. Oh, really? I think it's a best practice. No. It's also best practice to not ship your biggest piece of evidence to a psychic that's a fair point (sighs) that's a fair point i'm just gonna like just skim something about him really quickly yeah you know what other details interesting to me so vernon brown apparently lured janet Mm -hmm. into his home Mm -hmm. it was really stepkids there yeah it was really striking to me what you said just in scene setting that there was like a makeshift candy store set up at that place. Mm-hmm. I found that to be very interesting. Yeah. Now, this is not saying the exact condition of Janet's body, mm-hmm. but that it was disposed of in at least two trash bags. Yeah. So if he did dismember her or mm-hmm. cut her up in some way then that makes that seem more compelling to me mm-hmm. now I just need to find that information more explicitly stated the only I was reading up on some like you know of the Vernon Brown theory and somebody said that the biggest piece of excluding like that excludes him is that he was tested and found to have a low IQ and this would have required a higher IQ to do. And I'm like, I don't... I just don't think that's almost ever true. No. No. Like, this I, wasn't yeah. a a mastermind plot. Mm-mm. And as long as Mm-mm. he's typically functioning, I think he would have been able to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's less about intelligence and more about... Um what kind of like 
evil fortitude do you have mm-hmm. really like that's the difference you know yeah that i mean that is interesting yeah kimberly campbell nude and battered body found in a vacant house in indianapolis mm-hmm. yeah i mean senator ford seems like the outlier as far as the ages mm-hmm. he seems like an opportunist mm-hmm. but being an opportunist feels like it kind of excludes the like traveling family theory too though mm. i'm curious about what his sons know his stepsons i know his stepsons were terrified of him i'm sure they were they were stuff absolutely they terrified of him were you know victim to overhearing or seeing or whatever is mm-hmm. un- absolutely unbelievable yeah i think that's a really interesting theory i I don't know how sold I am on it just because of putting that together with her isotope analysis that communicates to us that she wasn't from St. Louis Mm -hmm. and that he seems to be an opportunist. Yeah. It's awfully unlucky that a girl who's there but isn't local just so happens to be picked up by somebody who Mm -hmm. does this, you know? Yeah. What else you got? Those are the two biggest theories that we have. Again, we don't have a ton of information. We don't have a ton to go on. Um, Our best guess in solving this Jane Doe case is that they come up with some evidence for the genetic genealogy at this point. You know, everybody wants this girl to be identified. Everybody wants this girl to have her story told. Mm -hmm. So I want to end by literally putting little Jane Doe to rest. Little Jane Doe was reburied in 2013 at St. Louis Cemetery in the Garden of the Innocents, a location in the cemetery specifically for lost children. This time, instead of only a brief five-minute ceremony, she was given a full interfaith ceremony, where she was celebrated with song, prayer, and faith that her case would one day be solved. This time, she would be buried with the name Precious Hope in front of hundreds of mourners, the people who her story had touched, the people who would never forget her story, and the people who would never let her be lost and let her story be forgotten. Although her story remains unsolved, as we mentioned, she is only one DNA submission away from being identified and being able to find her family. Mm. So this is a plea to everybody, if you can, if you are comfortable with it, to do a DNA test, upload a GED match, and, you know... Look at the story of little Jane Doe and all the other Jane Doe's. It's possible that you are a distant cousin to them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's, it really is like a one match away situation, I'm sure, from the perspective of the, the genealogical researcher doing it. So, yeah, I mean, if, if you feel good doing it, then it's a good thing to do, you Mm -hmm. know? Man. That's got my brain just humming. I really expect, I mean, it's such a, it's a heartbreaking case and it's, it, it hurts me deeply to think about what she went through in life and then what she went through in death, like just being in, you know, a a location that nobody knew. And Mm -hmm. I mean, that just, it's heartbreaking from top to bottom. So I'm, I'm very glad that she was able to be reburied and and given a funeral and 
and that she's been able to be put to rest in a respectful and dignified way, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I I worry a lot about what her life was like in life. I mean, she was well taken care of, but her stomach being empty was also striking to me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a very puzzling case. Like on its face, it just looks like wow, what a grisly tragedy. Mm-hmm. But when you really look at the details, it's it's deeply puzzling and all these details seem kind of mm-hmm. like they're all screaming something, but the whole picture doesn't make sense together. You yeah. Know? It's, I think what always strikes me is this is a girl in a brand new outfit, a cute girl whose mom at least cared enough to let her paint her nails in cute ways and mm-hmm. play and have fun. And then for no one to report her missing. And 40 years later, still to have no connections to the world. Yeah. Yeah, it's baffling. It's really baffling. I mean, the the other way to think about, look at that, it's a darker timeline, but um, I had to think about it too, was like child sex trafficking mm-hmm. would be, a you know, a possibility mm-hmm. as well. And that might be a... One of the reasons that like a door-to-door search wasn't super effective, you know. But you would think then that there would be some signs of some level of abuse or markings on her mm-hmm. body outside yeah. of the previous traumas. Yeah, yeah. There was no sign of previous trauma. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea that for whatever reason she was in St. Louis. It seems like the the search has to be focused in those states that the her isotopic analysis implies that she's from, and like those analyses are really interesting and pretty robust. Like they can tell, you know, where you spent most of your life. They can tell where you spent a little bit of your life. You know, mm-hmm. and, and I think for it if, to say, yeah, if that data was available earlier, if that technology was available earlier, we probably could have gotten better results. Mm-hmm. But you know, yeah. Do what but we now can. Everyone's getting older. That's what would be involved in the case. I mean, today she would be what fifty? Yeah. Let's see. She was found late forties. We can, you know, roughly say she was born in seventy three. So yeah, she'd be about fifty. Mm-hmm. So like you would hope that she still has living parents, but she may not. You know, mm-hmm. or siblings. So, or I mean, you know, mm-hmm. if you if people had you know a cousin that randomly went missing. Or mm-hmm. a sibling that randomly went missing or a little girl on your street that you never heard yeah. from again, you know? You really just never know, mm-hmm. you know? That's the thing. You just never know. Mm-hmm. So in whatever recesses of your brain you can dig into, you know, you got to encourage people to dig that are from those places, you yeah. know? Yeah. Well, that was hard. Yeah. But you did a really good job with it. I try. Yeah, you did. You did a really good job with it. Why don't you tell us what we're going to do next episode? Mm, I am so exhausted on every level, but despite my exhaustion, we are going to be taking a a deep dive into the history of the Indiana KKK. Oh, joy. Yes, and the murder that led to its... um, I don't want to say it's downfall necessarily because Mm. I don't know that that's totally true, but at least uh, led to a significant tarnishing in its enrollment numbers, its efficacy, um, 
all that stuff. So we're going to be taking a, a good hard look at that. Okay. It's going to be very interesting, I promise you. Great. It's going to be tough. We to talk about the KKK. Yeah. I feel like I might... Cool people who did cool stuff covered just like a bunch of like people that fought the KKK and they talked about it like a bunch of various incidences. So, mm. yeah, yeah, we're going to talk about some really interesting people, some, uh, yeah, just some people that were very involved in trying to take these people down. Good. So, it's going to be kind of a wild ride. I'm intrigued. Yes, well, I am glad that you're intrigued. I hope that our audience is intrigued. Please come back for that if you are so inclined. I will be inclined by then. Right now I feel like I have an ice pick going through my temple. Yeah, we need to sign off so you can go to bed. I have to be up at 5.30 tomorrow, so I need to go to bed too. Oh, Jesus. Go to bed, girl. Yeah, it's 11 now, so this is going to suck. Okay. So uh, until we meet again, friends, please connect with us. Uh, If you can, like and review. You know, the more stars, the better. Uh, be in touch with us on the socials or via email. We're at MidWretched everywhere. Uh, we love case suggestions. So if you have one to throw at us, we are more than willing to take a look at it. Yeah, we do love suggestions. We do. All right, friends, that was a tough one. So please take care of yourself. Um, eat some cheese and some chocolate. And, um, you know, take as always, and go just to kind bed. of. Yeah, take some ibuprofen <laughs> and go to bed. And when you are more healthy and awake feeling, think about ways in which you could maybe do whatever your part is in helping cases like this. Agreed. Okay, that was a big yawn, so we should just I let know. you go. Now. Okay. <laughs> All right, Agreed. bye, we friends. Love you we'll guys. see you next Thank time. Thank you so much. Yes, love, love. Love, love. my ancestry kit (gasps) yeah when are you gonna spit in a tube i don't know probably i was gonna do it tonight but then i got a migraine Mm. (laughs) i mean it doesn't take that much to spit listen (laughs) it took enough to bring my head out of a blanket so (laughs) and here you are